Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online. My name is Worth, and if you're new, welcome. Thanks for joining us. If not, welcome back. I just want to hit a few quick announcements before we jump in. First, a reminder about our special announcement we made last week. For those of you who consider West Seattle Christian Church your home, the church leadership team and I will be hosting a town hall meeting on June 27th instead of our regularly scheduled worship service, so we'll, it'll take the place of that. And we're going to be talking about the future uh, vision for our church community as we come out of COVID for the rest of 2021. We're going to be sharing our ministry accomplishments from this past year, give an overview of our finances, share about a bunch of potential uh, tremendous opportunities that we have ahead of us as a church family. So you don't want to miss that. If this is your church home, you can sign up on our church website or on the app. But we ask that if you come in person, you're planning on doing that, that you follow our regathering procedures and guidelines, which can be found on our website. And afterwards, we'll do a recap video for those of you who can't make it, and we'll send out that link in our church email, the West Seattle Christian Weekly. Well, we're almost four weeks into our summer spiritual formation exercise of hand copying the book of Proverbs together. This has been a great activity for me and my family. I hope for you and yours as well. Our kids are really into this. It's shaping them in really cool ways, so it's never too late to join up with us. We're planning on having an in-person hand-copying event later in the summer as we're further along in the book of Proverbs, so keep your eyes open for that. All right, let's dive in. So, last week we covered Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15. Today we're just going to breeze through the rest of chapter 15 and all the way up to chapter 19. And what happens is that God calls Abram to go to the land of Canaan and Lot comes with him and they end up going separate ways because there's not enough room for them to stick together because all of, they need more room for the herds and their flocks to stay to get to, to feed on. So then Lot gets captured. He's hauled off along with all of his stuff and a bunch of other people. Abram comes to his rescue and gets him back. When he does that, Abram recaptures all the stolen goods that were taken, and on the way back home, he runs into this guy named Melchizedek. And while there, he gives a tithe of all this stuff to the Lord through this priestly king, Melchizedek. We are walking through the story of the Bible, focusing on the role of priests. And that story begins with God creating a garden called Eden. Where heaven and earth are one. And God places humans in the garden to be his royal image, his priests so that humans and God can work together as one. And this whole setup is called God's blessing. But tragically, the priestly humans are duped into rebelling against God and then exiled from the garden. But God promises that one day a descendant will come to defeat that evil deceiver and restore humanity as royal priests. And we learn he'll be both a priest and a sacrifice. But as it stands, humanity is outside of Eden and things have spiraled into chaotic violence. But God chooses from the wreckage a couple, Abraham and Sarah. And God calls them to journey to the land of Canaan, and he promises to give them a huge family and all the blessings of Eden. Now, the blessing isn't just for them. The goal is that God's blessing flows through their family out to all the nations. And so that makes Abraham's family like a priesthood. So is Abraham that royal priest we've been hoping for? Well, no. But Abraham does meet a mysterious figure who reminds us of that promised royal priest. And who is this? Well, Abraham is returning victorious from a risky battle, and he passes by the city of Shalem, and this king comes out to meet him. And we're told that this king is also a priest who serves the same God that Abraham does. Ah, yes, Melchizedek. This man's a mystery. We don't know why he worships Abraham's God, 
We don't even know his family lineage. Exactly. But here's what happens. Melchizedek brings this great feast out to Abraham and his army, and then he gives God's blessing to Abraham, saying, God is the one who gave him this victory over his enemies. Then Abraham gives Melchizedek one-tenth of everything that he has, and that's the story. And just to give you the, some context, the scriptures tell us he took 318 fighting men with him, which means there's a bunch of non-fighting men, women and children, back at home. So it's plausible that Abram has this whole extended family slash adopted caravan troop of around three or four times the amount of his fighting men, basically a small town traveling around with him. Then God shows up and says, Abram, I'm going to be your reward. And Abram is like, uh, that's nice, but I don't have kids. What do your promises even mean to me at this point? Because if I don't have an heir, everything I have is going to go to my servant. And when I'm finally gone, my betav, my, my household, it's going to disintegrate and dissolve into nothing. And all these people are not going to have anybody to really protect them and take care of them. A few other things to remember from last week. The great thing about Abram is that he chose his wife and he chooses to stay with her knowing that she is barren. That's how much he loves her because this is not normal for back then in this culture. Every other guy would have taken a second wife. So we made note of that. It's easy for us thousands of years later to be kind of dismissive and say, so what? God kind of worked it all out in the end. It's just a story. Sure. But Beth and I didn't know that when we waited for years, we didn't know that God was going to have a plan for us when we had our son and daughter years after waiting for it. We didn't know if it was going to work out or not. And Abraham didn't know that either. And plenty of other people don't know that. It's incredible what he did. It was totally acceptable and natural in that day to have multiple wives. And he chose to never go that route. And he doesn't, in fact, he doesn't take another wife until after Sarah dies. Then God says to Abram, and he says, bring all these animals to me. And Abraham knows, Abram knows what's going on. He cuts them in half. He creates a path of blood down the middle. We covered this about four years ago in our Covenant and Kingdom series. God and Abram are going to enter a covenant. Specifically, they are entering into what's called a suzerain vassal covenant. Now, this was the most common type of covenant out of several types. This type is used when you have a, a greater party and a lesser party. The greater party is called the suzerain and the lesser party is called the vassal. So when a nation conquered another nation, the conquering king would go to the defeated king and they would make a covenant like this. And the conquering king is the suzerain and the defeated king was the vassal. Herod in the time of Jesus was a vassal king to Caesar, the emperor of Rome. And both parties have terms as part of the covenant that they need to meet as part of this agreement. For example, Caesar would say to Herod, look, I'm not going to kill you and take over your country again and wipe it out. That's my part of the covenant. If you pay me taxes, that's your part of the covenant. So the animal sacrifice creates this blood path. And when both parties make the covenant, they would walk through this blood path while saying out loud the terms of the covenant. And they did this as a physical object lesson to remind both parties of what will happen to them if they violate the covenant. But the way this worked in antiquity is that the suzerain, the more powerful party, didn't have to remember anything about, about the covenant, including the terms. It was all on the vassal's shoulders to remember it. The vassal had the job to remember the covenant, to honor, and to keep it. This is also, by the way, the exact same type of covenant that was carried out when a groom married his bride. A groom would make this covenant between himself 
and the bride's father. The bride's father, by the way, is always the suzerain, the more powerful party in the covenant. So kind of a rabbit trail question here. What would our culture be like today if guys would make part of their wedding vows be a deal with their spouse's dad like that? Like, if anything goes wrong, her father would get to bring the ax to the root of the tree, so to speak. So the father-in-law can bring the pain and exact judgment on the groom for violating the covenant. So father of the bride is the suzerain, groom is the vassal. So God makes this kind of covenant with Abram. Abram, even though you're in your 70s, you're going to have a son. And we covered this in our Covenant and Kingdom series, but in this type of covenant, the vassal would always go through the path of blood first. The lesser party would always go through first. But in Genesis 15, after Abram lays out the animals, he's just sitting there on a hill for quite some time. He's just kind of waiting and he, he won't walk through the blood. The question is why? Well, if you know, now you do know, if you know how these covenants work and you're about to make a covenant with the king of the universe, wouldn't you be kind of pondering this for a while? Like, how are you going to hold up your end of the bargain? He's probably sitting there thinking, I am in big trouble. I am never going to be able to hold up my end of the deal. I'm so dead. Well, then God causes him to fall asleep. And while asleep, he has this vision of a flaming torch and a smoking pot. What you need to know is that in the Old Testament, flames and smoke are always a, a sign, a reference to the presence of God. And this flaming torch goes through the path of blood first, and then the smoking pot goes through. And what we find out is this is God's presence walking the path of blood twice. In other words, Abram, I know you can't fulfill your end of the deal by yourself, so I'm going to walk it for you. I'll walk it with you. Maybe that's why Paul says later in Galatians 3 verse 8, God, knowing he was going to reconcile the Gentiles, preached the gospel to Abram beforehand. Pretty cool, right? I mean, doesn't this sound like the resurrection grace of Jesus? I'll fulfill your part. I'm going to go to the cross. I'll walk the path in your place. Well, then by the end of chapter 16, Abram is 86 years old. It's been nine years, not, not count them, nine years, and the promise still hasn't been fulfilled. So Sarai is sitting there and, and she does something that was considered acceptable back then. She knows that God has said that the blessing of the nations will come through Abram's line. So for the good of the household, the bet of, she tells Abram she will trade positions with Hagar, telling him to take Hagar as his wife. That's what it says in Genesis 16. Uh, Sarai actually becomes Abram's mistress. Well, then Hagar gets pregnant, and then she starts picking on Sarai and mistreating her. In other words, Hagar is raised up to the place of privilege and power, and she immediately starts to mistreat someone below her. So Sarai comes back to Abram and says, this isn't good. Abram says, look, you're still my wife, and she's still your servant. It's really not like this. He says, this is how the chain of command is going to line out. You're still in charge of Sarai. And we think that's good at first, right? Well, the first thing Sarah does when she gets gets told that by Abram is she gets revenge. She mistreats Hagar and apparently so badly that Hagar takes off. Well, then we get this bit about an angel of the Lord coming to Hagar and telling her to return. And Hagar's like, mm -mm. she didn't say anything. It's like the angel's waiting for a response and it's like crickets, chirp, chirp. Finally, the angel says that the Lord's going to bless her with many kids and the Lord has heard you. And only after that does she go back. 
So we're told that Abram is 86 years old when Ishmael was born. And then fast forward to chapter 17, which opens like this, when Abram was 99 years old. What? 13 more years have gone by. It says, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. So there's a few things to note here. Abram means exalted one, but Abraham means father. God takes away the title exalted one and just makes his title the father. Just kidding. Not like that. But in this next part, it feels like God is saying the same things over and over and over again. And he's done this before back in Genesis 9 with Noah. Verse 6 through 18 here basically land on the fact that God wants all the males of Abram's household to be circumcised. And if they don't do it, they've broken the covenant. To which all the guys are like, really? So Abram has to, Abram has to circumcise all of them. How many is that? Well, we know he had 318 fighting men before. So there's all this repetition in this section. Is God repeating himself for no reason? And the question is, have we ever seen this type of thing before in the text? And this is very similar to the covenant God made with Noah in Genesis 9, which I just referenced. Um, it says, then God said to Noah and his sons, I now establish my covenant with you between me and you. And it goes on and on. And we've talked a lot about chiasms in this series. And there was this whole chiasm present in Genesis 9 in the covenant that God made with Noah. At the center of that chiasm, the treasure, remember a chiasm points to the treasure in the middle. The treasure we find in the verses, in the middle of those verses is this phrase, I will remember. And this is the same thing he says to Abraham in Genesis 17. Basically, he says, I'm going to remember and honor, I'm going to honor this covenant for you. I'm going to honor it. But it's super weird for God to say this to Abraham because... What I want you to remember about these types of covenants, what we covered before, is that it's not the more powerful party's job to remember the covenant. Suzerains don't do this. It's the vassal's job to remember the covenant. What's going on here is simply that God is acting like the lesser party of the covenant. God is taking the lower position, the servant position, even though he's the suzerain. Now, if you or I were Abraham at this point, I would be stoked because God just bailed me out. God has just bailed Abraham out big time. So there's always a sign that goes with the covenant. The sign for Noah's covenant was what? The rainbow. The sign for Abraham's covenant, circumcision. And I'll leave it to you to decide who got the better deal on that one. Now, why is circumcision the sign? In the ancient world, circumcision had a couple of major purposes. One is that all priests of all of the other gods of the other religions, all those priests were circumcised as a mark of their priesthood. So given that, it makes sense why God would have Abraham do this part of his covenant. But the second use of circumcision in the ancient world was if a people were conquered and became vassals of someone else. The suzerain would often circumcise them as a mark that they'd been conquered. The question is, what is God doing with this? Well, God takes Abraham, exalted one, and he lowers him. You're just a father now. You're the father of my Be'av. And then he says, 
you're going to get marked with circumcision as a reminder to you that you are not to leverage your exalted position upon others. And this harkens back to the story about Sarai and Hagar, which is all about mistreatment of power, misuse of power and mistreatment that comes from that because of social hierarchy and position. Here's the point. God is making it crystal clear to Abraham what it means to, the, to be the father of God's household, to be the father of God's bet of that's going to bless the whole earth. So every male must be circumcised. Why? Well, let's look to the second half of this covenant and see what it reveals in Genesis 17, verse 15. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. Well, now Sarai means my princess, and Sarah means princess. Just a real short change there. And it's kind of like, so what? God just removes the possessive pronoun. Well, exactly. God is like, she is not your possession anymore, Abraham. Being the father in God's household is not about power and position over anybody. It's about being a servant. She is your equal. You see, I did this thing with Adam where I made a woman to be different, but co-equal partner in life to help and support you and vice versa. You need each other to which all the ladies said, amen, right? Circumcision is the great leveler. It brings the exalted low and raises the lowly up. And that's the deal. This covenant that God makes with Abraham, his job is to lower himself, the one with position and power, and to raise up the low, the one who doesn't have position and power. That is his job in the Beit Av of God. So take a look, Genesis 17, verse 16. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham, Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. And God's like, Yes! I got Ishmael. I got his back. Why? Because he is also part of your Beit Av, your household. You have to bless him, which basically flies in the face of any mantra espoused by Christians in America toward people in the Middle East today or any other skin color or nationality for that matter. Flies right in the face of that. Genesis 17 verse 19. Then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I got him. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. And he will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household and bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. Now, that's a lot of circumcision in one day, but I want you to think about what God's doing in this covenant. He brings the exalted low and he raises the lowly up. What's the next story then? The next story is the three strangers that are ultimately gonna turn out to be angels, but Abraham doesn't know that yet. They are strangers to him and he's sitting in his tent in the heat of the day. And he's just sitting there. 
was burning hot. He's sitting in his tent in the heat of the day because he just got circumcised. He's just resting. And he still gets up and runs to meet three people that he doesn't even know. That's the kind of guy that God wants to use. Then he finds out God's plan. God's like, hey, I'm going to go destroy Sodom. Now, Abraham has just learned that his job is to bring the exalted low and to raise up those who are lowly. So for people who don't have a household to belong to, a bet off, what should he do for them? So it makes sense that he fights for them. But God, he says, if there were, you know, if there were 50 righteous, would you spare this city? This is his side of the covenant. He's remembering his side of the covenant to fight for those who are low. You know, ultimately, God does not destroy Sodom, but not for, uh, it's very common to think that it's for this perversion type of idea that people ascribe to it, but for something, it's really for something really interesting that's connected to these other stories that we've just talked about. Uh, the JPS Torah commentary, one that I read when I'm studying all of this, says this, the sin of Sodom then is heinous moral and social corruption, an arrogant disregard of basic human rights, a cynical insensitivity to the sufferings of others. And then it goes on to mention Ezekiel 16, 49, which says this. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. So what was their sin? They didn't lift up those who were low. This mandate that God gives Abraham is at the core of what it means to be a servant and a follower of God in God's household, in his bit of, and in his church. This is at the core of what it means to be part of God's community throughout time, to be part of his people. And all of a sudden, we understand something. What does it take to be the kind of person that God wants to partner with to put the world back together? What kind of person is it that he is looking for? What does it take? It takes someone who is willing to give up status, someone who's willing to give up power, who is willing to give up authority in order to raise up those around them. And here's a qualification on that. Sometimes I meet Christians, and in fact, history is full of examples of this, where we think that by following God, we're now in a position to think of ourselves as people with status. And the problem with that is that we fall into Hagar's trap. I've been low, now I'm not, now I'm in charge. And then what do I do with that? Do I raise people up? So when you're in charge and you think that way, it really essentially leads to rebellion. The goal of this covenant is to be able to see the parameters of authority structures that are there for our own good in God's bait of, in his household. The goal of the covenant is to help us understand what true authority should be like, how those with true authority, those who are leaders, should treat those underneath them. They should care for and raise up those under them. And if, if those under this type of authority are treated well and taken care of and raised up, then they're going to love those who are above them. But the problem is that people have ignored this structure of God's household from that time until now, even. Well, as we wrap this up, before we get to the next part next week, as we wrap this up, I want to give you guys an implication. The first of which is God redeems the story by taking the form of a servant and lifting up the helpless. If this is the God we're going to put on display, then this is how we need to live our lives too. Rather uh, for seeking after glory and status for ourselves, we should lay our lives down to serve others so they can be raised up. 
And the flow of this is that God creates the world and asks us to trust what he wants to do with the world. And humanity has done a really bad job of that. Abraham does trust God with this, and then God is able to use them, use him. And the same, the same can happen and be true for us. Second, every person has a role in God's covenant, commun- covenant community. And that, that doesn't mean that we all have the same role and can do the same things, but everybody has a role. True spiritual leadership is at its best when it's pulling out of people the best version of what God has already put in them. And this is what Abraham is called to do. He's not the leader so he can put people under his thumb or demand stuff from others and say, do this, do that. That is not godly leadership. Next, our call is to imitate Christ, to to put God on display by lowering myself, by lowering ourselves to exalt others. And that is what God is doing with Abraham. It's what Jesus models for us. Philippians 2, you have to check that out. It spells it out perfectly. Go read it after you listen to this, the whole thing. Jesus does not leverage himself, leverage his status for himself. Instead, even though he is God incarnate, he hangs out with the lowest of the low. He heals the sick and the lepers. He goes to those who are outcasts from society. He gives sight to the blind. He made those who are lesser more. This is what our lives should then look like as well. They should look like Jesus. So here's the litmus test for you. When? was the last time you became less so that someone else could become more. Fourth implication. If I'm already one who has been brought low, this new uh, liberation and exaltation does not give me license to pay back the oppressor. My job is not revenge. That's what happened with Hagar and Sarai in that part of the story. It happened with Noah before them. The one in power wants to exact revenge on the one who mistreated them. The way to stop that kind of mistreatment is to just not mistreat people. That Jesus and Paul visit this over and over again. Paul says in Romans 12 or 17, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God never asks you to partner with him in revenge. He asks you to partner with him in redemption. As much as it depends on you, be the kind of person that unleashes the power of God in people's lives by how you treat them. Finally, don't humble yourself to make yourself less, but to make others more. And that's really, really important. What a lot of people do is this kind of mental gymnastics where they're like, I want to be humble, so I don't want to say anything good about myself. I'm just going to be say bad things. I mean, I mean people who do this kind of self-deprecating thing. Well, I'm not any good or anything. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not good. I'm not a good person. Really, they're doing this because they're just kind of fishing for compliments. Like they're waiting for you to say, no, that's not true. You're awesome. Are you kidding me? You're great. And really that is just pride disguised as false humility. Humility does not deny what you are. Humility uses who and what you are to make someone else better, not to build your own world. And that's the difference. I'm humble so the people around me become more. This is what Jesus does as an example for us again and again. 
Again, just read Philippians 2. And we'll wrap it up with that. This is why Jesus humbled himself. Jesus is the ultimate suzerain. And he took on the form of a vassal so that you and I and everyone else could become more. Until next time, I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church Online. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.